Hey guys, welcome to the GSTEM News Podcast. I'm Derek, I've got Larry here with me. This week we're going to be talking about the greatest thing that's ever happened to humanity, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're going to look at the historicity of the resurrection, as well as what it means for Christianity, and where we would be as a religion without the resurrection. We hope you enjoy this podcast, but before we get into anything, let's get a word in from our sponsors. In the secular world, having taken biblical courses, um, looking at the Bible secularly, uh, there is a lot of controversy necessarily around the resurrection itself as far as its historicity. Uh, And it's interesting because there's never any evidence submitted that like, oh, he wasn't resurrected other than that's impossible to the human mind. <laughs> like, like that, that's literally the only evidence that by scholars granted, like people that I respect and were, was taught by in college, the only evidence they could give me was it's just not possible. Uh, you know, a, that's a very humanistic way of putting it. Yeah. I was going to say that's really humanistic, but like, not even playing devil's advocate, although it's going to kind of sound like it, like, you know, in 999,999 other instances, even we would take it's impossible as evidence of something. So like, it's not like I, I, and I I don't say that to say that they're correct. I just say that to say like, I'm sure that there are people out there listening to this who are just like, well, of course it happened. And like, how could these people doubt it and stuff? And it's just like, you know, if we really want to reach these people, one of the important things we have to do is let ourselves understand where they're coming from. Yeah. Because something being impossible is a reason that we would think something didn't happen in every other aspect of our life. Correct. Yeah. I mean, but based on the evidence, like, I guess that kind of leads into our, our, our first talking point, which is, is the resurrection historical? So first of all, we've already established that people have a hard time believing Jesus resurrected, let alone even existed. But many, I would say any serious historian would never deny the existence of Jesus. So why is that? Well, that, there's a few things, but the main ones I want to talk about is Flavius Josephus, which I've talked about a few times on the podcast. Uh, he mentions Jesus twice and says that he was condemned, condemned to death by Roman authorities. And he also references Jesus in regards to Jesus' brother James being stoned to death. Uh, then you have Tacitus. He also mentions Jesus. It's about 86 years after the crucifixion. Uh, But Tacitus confirms that Jesus' death was by crucifixion. And the presence of, he also attested the presence of Christians in Rome in his day, which obviously verifies and validates Paul's writings to the Roman church. So, and, and claims that Peter had visited Rome, you know. So, second, where do we draw our evidence for the resurrection? And I'll give you a hint. 
it's it's not necessarily John. And there's a few reasons for that. It's simply because John is not focused on the chronology of the events. He's focused on telling us who Jesus was as God and man. So the main ones that we use are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Paul's epistles. So before the New Testament, you know, was the New Testament. I guess that's the best way to say that. It was just a collection of these apocalyptic writings. <laughs> and uh, it was written down by several apostles. You had the Apocalypse of Peter, Paul. There were several out there. Uh, it was also written oral traditions. Uh, so like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were circulating. Uh, but they were just written oral traditions. And they were some. there were some of the letters to the church. Uh, Timothy had letters. Uh, Peter had... You know, there, there are some cases where we found up to five different epistles written by Peter or, or, you know, attested to by Peter. So the New Testament didn't get canonized until the third century. And, you know, we well, we may talk about that at a later date. But, but without these religious concepts applied, and that's where people are going to probably stall me to death for this, but without applying religious concepts to each of these writings, they are purely historical documents at the yeah. core. Later, that, that sacredness, that holiness was applied because of their content. However, and this is one of the big talking points among those who are deniers, we don't have any of the originals. We have copies of copies of copies at best. So some stories, you know, that I could, I could go down a list of a few stories that were introduced uh, much later than the originals that are not in some of the earliest stats, but that's not our point of the episode, but critical analysis of the Bible also shows us numerous textual errors. However, these textual errors rarely change the meaning of passages and the theology itself. So they're mostly spelling or grammatical, things like that, meaning those errors often are not enough to challenge the validity of any of these writings. So also, Christian teachings about Jesus had been spreading like wildfires for just a few years after uh, his crucifixion, some, some of the earliest Christian communities in Africa and the Middle East, th and this is, this is kind of my affront to this, some of these early Christian communities, especially in Africa and the Middle East, would have easily debunked and noticed any, of, any changes in teachings. And we've already talked about how the Western church and the Eastern church and African church were already at odds. Uh, even, yeah, as it always is. <laughs> yeah. But so it makes sense that they would want to challenge, you know, any introduction of teachings or write new teaching or new writings. Um, however, if we're moving on, but we got to understand also that many of these early Christians were not just Christians. They were Jews. Yeah. 
And why is that important? They were taught to preserve and maintain the integrity of scripture from a very early age. Mm -hmm. So this would have been present in these early church communities as well. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I, I mean, there were some, there were some splits that happened and there were a few things like the Gnostics were a big issue that is referenced in the Bible. Yes. You know, and there's a few things like that, but by and large, the early church didn't, it's not like you see the church down the block that, you know, they blew up and five years later, they became like four different congregations because everybody liked a different pastor. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's, it's not as extreme as that. And it realistically, if there wasn't some validity to it, it should have ended up that way. Yes. Because and- the only thing that can keep something like that together is truth. Yeah, I mean, that's why Paul is so adamant of if I, speaking of himself, if I or any other person or angel comes to you teaching you any other gospel than you were delivered at first, shun them. Get them out of your church. That's how important these things were to the early Christians. Third, we got to talk about the discrepancies between the gospels about the resurrection. So Matthew reports us in trouble, bro. Well, my job to get us in trouble. What are you doing? Sometimes I just like playing around, Uh, but it all seriousness, I influence you a little bit. No, in all seriousness, this is, um, I mean, yes. Oh, it's super important. It is super important. It's important because again, some of these things are stumbling blocks to people. And if we don't understand how to approach them, or we know nothing about them, we can, or we, yeah. yeah or, or we pretend they don't exist because it makes us feel better. Yeah. And, and none of this makes any of the Bible inerrant. Let me be clear. Like, none of this is like, this is false. This is false. This is false. All I'm saying is, is that Matthew records that Mary Magdalene and another Mary went to the tomb. Mark records that Mary Magdalene uh, and Mary, the mother of James and Salome went to the tomb. Luke says just simply they referring (laughs) to a group of women went to the tomb. I appreciate Luke's not specificity specificity because, you know, you can't argue about him. Yeah. He's the one that hunted down and interviewed and, studied (laughs) interestingly though he probably did that because like it's very possible that he had matthew and mark and because there was some disagreement about exactly which marys were there he went they oh yeah because because that would have been the kind of person luke was like he was being a doctor he would have been very scientific and he would have only included the things that he could verify and that he could say like, this is in agreement. Yeah. I mean, that's why acts is so detailed and to the mm-hmm. point because Luke directly witnessed them. He yeah. was there at every step or he interviewed someone who was there. 
So many are going to use these discrepancies to prove these accounts invalid. However, that is completely ridiculous. Perspective, importance, and all that is at play here. And we've already said Luke being Luke would have just said, it doesn't matter. They. Mark yeah. being Mark. He's he's a young... First of all, it, it's most likely Peter dictating to Mark. But beyond that, so Peter is probably like just throwing some names out there. Like, I think it was da 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 and because peter wasn't there and then you have matthew who was a tax collector so he's very meticulous uh so what he said is probably just what he knew to the best of his knowledge but all that is at play here really at the root of it it doesn't change what happened when the women got there I mean, Listen, if let's be real here. If Mary took Jesus's like John, here is your mother, woman, here is your son thing too seriously, Peter might just not wanted to reference her because he didn't like her anymore. I mean, yeah, that, that's the kind of but it, you're laughing. That's the you're kind of person Peter was. I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah the, I'm gonna pretend she wasn't there because I don't like her. <laughs> well, I mean, Peter reminds me of, and this is kind of like an aside, but. Peter is very much like an Appalachian mountain person because if you make any of those people mad, you are dead to them forever. <laughs> like, yeah. like, he he strikes me that way when I read about him. But again, that that's his perspective. That's what he thought was important when he's dictating this to Mark. So the other thing is they weren't written side by side. It wasn't like Matthew sat down and I mean, he, he had probably talked to Peter and Mark and he probably had a little bit of Mark, what Mark had written already, but they weren't written side by side. They were written by three completely different people from three very different backgrounds. One was a tax collector. Peter and Mark were unlearned fishermen and Luke is a doctor, very different perspectives and backgrounds. So, in fact, I would say that if they all match perfectly, that would take away from the validity of the sources. Yeah. Because it would, it would bring to the point, like, okay, all four of these people are saying the exact same thing in the exact same order, in the exact same way. This is corroborated. Yeah. That's typically what you do as a historian. So, like I said, John is... So, what you're saying is, is speaking as a historical document, right? So, we're treating these as men writing their memories of Jesus, which is what the Gospels are, to be clear. The Gospels are... When we say that the Bible is inspired, we're not saying that God dictated word for word to these men what to write. That's just, that's really not supported by the scriptures. There are aspects of things that are that kind of a thing, but generally those, those sections literally say, thus saith the Lord, and then quote the Lord. And that's different. But like the gospels, they're just these guys writing their memories. They're writing their memoirs. Right. And a lot of them were, decades after the fact yeah you know and so like 
the reality is, is that them having minor details that are slightly different actually makes them more, have more credibility. Yes. You know, cause I, I mean, just think about it. Ask one of your friends to recount, you know, a dinner party last week or something that you both were at. And you're going to disagree about all kinds of stupid little details that really don't matter. Yeah. Now do it for something that happened 20 years ago. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like there are certain things in there that are like, like that are very similar or the same between the yeah. three, but they're not using the same wording or, you know, even recounting the same people per se in some instances. And that is a good thing. Like now if it was like, Oh, well, in fact, you know, it says in the resurrection, well, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary and Salome, but, and then Matthew says Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, like, that is a good thing. It's the fact that he that Mark throws in Salome doesn't matter because yeah. these sources say, okay, Mary and the other Mary were at least there. We know that, and that's good. So the other thing is there are at least, at minimum, 11 biblical and secular sources speaking of Jesus' death all written within one century of his death. That is, that is like the platinum standard for people in history. Like a, that is so rare. It's insane. Yeah. Especially now for somebody who like ruled, didn't rule the world or something like the oh, reality oh, oh. Is, is Jesus should have been pretty inconsequential. Oh, but, but guess what? What, why is that 11 sources? Why is that even important? Another historical figure that we all know that ruled a lot of the known world at that time, Alexander the Great. Yeah. The earliest sources we have on him are written roughly 300 years after his death. And despite this, we don't question Alexander the Great existed. Really? Yep. Wow. So the the first source that we have, the earliest, uh, is the Universal History by Diodorus, or sorry, Dior, Diodorus, uh, Cyclotes. Uh, he lived between ninety and thirty BC. Alexander the Great lived like three sixty five, somewhere in there, to three twenty. I know he died in three twenty three. Wait, by that logic, so couldn't we also say that the book of Daniel could be uh, one of the earliest, depending on your dating of the book of Daniel? Like, it could be actually the earliest? That's actually an interesting thought. Uh, I'm scared to go down that oh, path. Oh, so, I, not to get too deep into it, there is, a, there is a, a thought by some scholars that Daniel was written... I think what second century yeah BC? in the second temple yeah so if that is all i'm saying is it's interesting in that if that is true then the book of daniel would actually be the earliest reference to alexander the great yeah 
in writing in history. Yeah, and, it, and it's known that parts of Daniel were probably not necessarily like the like events of Babylon, but like the later chapters. It's thought that they were written under Roman uh, yeah. oppression. But just just an interesting thought that it came to me. <laughs> yeah, no. Well, I mean, but here's the thing. Like, we don't question Alexander Zissel. We don't question what he did. In fact, some of the ones that we have outside of them, that's still the earliest one that we have about Alexander. And the only way that we know that he really existed is because we have people all throughout the Middle East and India and all these areas that speak negatively of Alexander. So we know he existed. Then you have Joe. So on Jesus, not only do you have the gospels, not only do you have all these extra biblical writings like Josephus Flavius and Tacitus and Paul, you've, you've, you've got to understand that this is a platinum standard. This is not, this is insane. So that brings the question, is the resurrection itself historical? So, let me ask you, how easy would it have been to disprove the resurrection? All you needed was the body. Yeah, I mean, pretty easy. I, mean, I guess technically, even then, though, I mean, you could just argue he resurrected in a different body um, somehow, you know, like. But you, here's the but thing. Yeah, I mean, you would you would bring great question into it if you just produce the body. Yeah, pretty easy. I mean, unseal the tomb, show the people that he's still there. Yeah. It's literally that easy. And even if you argue the disciples came to steal the body, they have to get by guards. And it was either temple guards or Roman guards, but that's not, that doesn't matter. Then people say, well, they could have bribed them. Yeah, but that's not likely because taking a bribe probably would have led to those guards' deaths. So, there's absolutely no reason to believe that the temple was not empty. None. Yeah. Further, there is no reason to suspect that the disciples stole the body or, and there is this crazy conspiracy theory out there that Jesus survived the resurrection. There's no reason to believe those things because they're not reasonable explanations. You mean survive the crucifixion? None of that is reasonable. Well, yeah, I mean, that's not reasonable either. I mean, we talked about, like, the, how crucifixions are. Like, I don't see how anybody in the first century survives crucifixion. No, and without medical attention, no. So, yeah. But, but uh, I mean, that's the other thing is, like, if there's enough writings of Jesus that you'd think that there'd be some writing somewhere where somebody was like, yeah, they had the body. Like, I don't under like. Like, it, it's not like we have anybody who ever used the argument of Jesus's body is right here, even to the disciples. Like, they were persecuting them in Jerusalem, and no one went, uh, Jesus's body is over there. Well, and, and to take that even further, like... It's... It, it just doesn't make any sense how 
you could be like, oh, well, the Catholic Church probably destroyed those writings. Not everyone was Catholic, especially in the early yeah. early church phase. There would have been some surviving documents. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there are some small groups that are called heretics that all of the writings of that group have been destroyed. But the reality is, is that most of the groups we've gotten at least a portion of their writings. It's very difficult to destroy every piece of evidence of a group of people that feel that what they're saying is important. Listen, the the Catholic Church tried, tried to wipe out the Arians. They tried to wipe out the Gnostics. They tried to wipe out uh, some of these other groups that believe differently on the Godhead. And they did wipe out the Martians. <laughs> Wait, they're just what? my favorite. Like they're the I know, I know. I <laughs> the Martians. They're they were they were the follower of Martius, not from the planet Mars. They're just okay, that, they're they were my. They were my favorite group because I remember being in um, it was like it was some sort of like biblical history class back in college. And it was he was just like, yeah, there's the Martians. It was just like the wait, wait, the what? It's just it's like the best part of that class is when the, the, the professor first brings up the Martians as an early Christian group. But like. The fact is, we still have all their right. Well, not all, but we have some of their yeah, right. We don't. We don't have. I don't think we have anything of the Martian of Martius and his followers because, but they weren't very big. Like they, they were, they were wiped out pretty quick. Like a lot of these sects, some of them were so small that they got wiped out quickly. But things like Arianism and Gnosticism and things like that were so big that we they couldn't possibly wipe it out and something like jesus body is over there in that tomb being written down over and over and over again you're not gonna wipe that out because that is the sole piece to undoing christianity yeah not only that but you'd think that people like uh like somebody in roman government that was like you know nero's burning rome down to try to get rid of these christians but we know where the body was buried like you think somebody would have pointed that out when you know, thousands of innocent people that aren't Christians are dying. That's literally all you need. Yeah, it's all you would need to stop all of that from happening. And the other thing is, it's like, well, Jesus, Jesus appeared to his disciples as well. There are people out there that truly believe that they were in grief-stricken, grief-induced hallucination when they saw Jesus after his resurrection. Why? So why is that not possible? Hallucinations are only able to piece together things that are already in your mind that you have knowledge of. And resurrection, not one of those things that Jews had knowledge of beyond the understanding of the resurrection at the last day. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, them just being total dirty liars who made it all up makes more sense than group hallucination. And further, (laughs) further, I mean, I don't think... How, yeah, how, do, I don't, how, I don't, how do 10 men and later, yeah, how do 10 men and later Thomas have the same exact hallucination? Yeah. And also the, the, the theological shift in, in the disciples is incredible from crucifixion 
and that those three days where he's in the tomb, they're all in hiding because they are they're fearing what's going to happen to them, and plus they just lost the only man that they know that could have saved them. And then after the resurrection, there's this massive theological shift. So they went from not even understanding or knowing about a resurrection of the dead to preaching that Christ was risen from the dead. Not, not even a hundred days after the crucifixion. Because Pentecost, isn't it 50 days from Passover? And on the day of Pentecost, Peter stands up and he gives the sermon. The same Jesus that you crucified, God had made him Lord and Christ. And I don't know if there's historical records of like Pentecost or any of the early church stuff outside. Like, well, like, are there are there other historical documents that say like they were reporting miracles and stuff? And maybe we do a podcast on that on Pentecost. Maybe but, we do. Yeah, we'll have to look into it because I know, I, I know, I you're good. You're not that good. <laughs> I don't know if anybody's that good to just be like, oh yeah, give like, me time and a crayon. Well, yeah, time and a crayon, and we'll figure it out. But so this happened though within months of Jesus' death and resurrection. Most notably on the day of Pentecost, and further, Bart Ehrman, uh, who I, I read a lot of, uh, he's a revered historical critic of the Bible. He even says that Paul's Corinthian Creed can be dated back within one to two years of Jesus' death. And if you don't know what the Corinthian Creed is, it's, I believe it's First uh, Corinthians ten and fifteen, where it says Jesus died for our sins and rose up on the third day. That was the Corinthian Creed. That was a form of belief or codifying belief. So these men also are willing to die for what they had seen and knew. And there are very few reasons to believe a per to not believe a person that's willing to die for their faith. You know, you got the whole heaven's gate thing, but that's, that's the first thing that popped in my mind was like, well, you've got heaven gate, heaven's gate. They were willing to off themselves but although aren't there aren't there disagreeing reports of how much they knew probably yeah i feel like there are like there's yeah there's i feel like there's some disagree i mean and it's just the whole like the prisoner thing like even the the stuff in ukraine that has been happening um hopefully by the time this is played it's over but um you know, there's there's videos coming out of Ukraine of like Russian prisoners. Yeah. And even though, you know, we see Ukraine as like the good guys of this, there's still people who are like, be really careful how seriously you take the words of people who are prisoners. Because even if you treat them well, they still have pressure. Even if it's just in their head and nowhere else to um say what you want them to say yeah and and we don't see that with the early christians i mean they they stood in the we know for it's not just the bible but we know that they stood in the Colosseum and they 
were fed to lions and they were boiled alive and they were, you know, crucified over and over and over again, and you know, different flayed alive and flayed alive and all kinds of other awful things. And, and they willingly took these things and it's like, well, there, like, there's so many stories of people willingly doing these things. Yeah. I mean, and that's what makes it so hard not to believe. And you can say, well, resurrection is humanly impossible. Okay. Well, up until the 1900s, we didn't really have a great way to bring someone back to life. Now we do. However, they didn't have these these things back in you know 30 AD or 31 AD because that that's not the point of any of this. The point is is that the tomb was empty. Jesus got up. He rose again on that third day. That is the story that the disciples gave. They stuck to it to death. They never recanted. They never backed down. They even said to live as Christ, to die as gain. They were willing to go to the chopping block. Paul ran to the chopping block. Peter asked to be crucified upside down because he wasn't worthy to be crucified like the Lord. Oh, just brutal. Like, there are so there's so much out there that I'm like, how can you not believe in a resurrection? Because it's as simple as producing a body or someone like Mark, who was like 16 at the time, someone like Barnabas or Timothy, who were all young men to just say, you know what? Nope. I, I, he's not alive. That's all it takes. I recant my faith. That's literally all it takes. And then it comes to people start saying, well, it's not prophesied anywhere in the Old Testament that a resurrection had to happen. So that's extra biblical. Let me just, let me piece together some Old Testament prophecy for you. So Isaiah 53 and 10 that's where I want to go first, because it says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He was put to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand out of the anguish of his soul. He shall be, see and be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. First of all, there, to me, there is obvious, he doesn't say it, he shall see his offspring, though. He shall pro prolong his days after his soul has made an offering for, for sin. To me, that sounds like resurrection. Isaiah makes it clear, though, that the Messiah will die, his soul will be an offering. However, there's very little mention of the resurrection, because Jesus could have done all these things in heaven. Another obvious passage that comes to mind to me, and is probably the number one as far as uh, prophecy of a resurrection, is Psalms 16 and 10, where it says, For you will not abandon my soul 
to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Psalm 16 is a prayer of confidence in God. Some would say verse 10 only applies to David because of the word abandon. So they're seeing it more as a prayer of escape from mortal danger. And if it weren't for the word Sheol, I would be in complete agreement. But the word Sheol is in there. And we've already discussed before what Sheol means on the podcast. And essentially, it's just a realm of the dead. So this indicates David isn't just speaking of any immediate danger. He is looking to overcome death itself. Also, the term holy one never refers to David, ever. Or anywhere else in the Bible is it used to refer to anyone. I mean, yeah, holy one referring to David is a huge stretch. I mean, it's like, guys, there's literally a big chunk where God explicitly tells David that he's so unclean that he's not allowed to build the temple. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's an exclusively, it is exclusively used as a Hebrew title applied to the Messiah. Yeah. Exclusively. Yeah. Like, there is nothing else that it could be applied to. However, though, we, we do need to get into the Davidic covenant and the Messianic covenant. And that can be found in 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 17, which says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son when he commits iniquity. I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul whom I put away from before you and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words. And in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So at first though, I'm like, Oh, that's clearly about Solomon. However, it says David's kingdom will last forever. And for that to be true, two things must happen. Or one thing must happen. David's descendants need to be on the throne of Israel forever. They weren't. (laughs) They didn't technically make it past Solomon. Technically, no. Rehoboam. (laughs) Because it's split. Yeah, Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Yeah. Well, and even then, forever. um, (laughs) Forever. I I mean, I know in context, forever probably just means to the end of this world kind of thing. But I mean, if we take forever at its literal, like forever is way longer than Israel will ever survive. Yeah. And so either David's descendants have to be on the throne of Israel forever, which doesn't happen, or there is a larger meaning. And that larger meaning being that the Messiah will come from David's line. And we all know that to be true. So when we couple all of these prophetic and covenant scriptures together, it's clear that the Messiah's mission is to be an offering for sin and it must result in his resurrection. When you couple them all together, you got to use scripture upon scripture, line upon line, precept upon precept. But that's how, that's how you use the Bible. You let it interpret itself in some situations like 
this, for example. So what is the significance? And this is, this is something that y'all probably, y'all probably are not going to be like, well, we already know what the significance of the resurrection is, but just hear me out for a second. If there's no resurrection, there's no Christianity. If they produce a body, there is no Christianity. Christ's resurrection is the most important part of Christianity, as we see extremely early on in Paul's letters and in Acts. So if there is no resurrection, there's no power. There is no mediator. There is not a Messiah who has been met with all things that we are tempted with and been through them and came out on the other side holy. Further, and I'm going to I'm going to go back to the last episode about the burial, but further, we talked about Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. They're making their way to the cross and they, they get the body and bury the body or, or put it in a tomb, wrap it in myrrh, aloes and the grave clothes. There was no concept of Jewish in Jewish theology beyond what would, you know, as far as resurrection goes, beyond what would happen after the Messiah's death. There was no concept of resurrection at all, really, until the last days. Here's the thing. Nicodemus and Joseph were both on the same council that plotted the death of Jesus. But they didn't just pay much respect to the fallen Messiah. And they didn't just put him in a tomb. So they're on the same council that plotted his death, but they also gave him a place of resurrection. So this is the significance of the resurrection. For those who believe you are too far, the same men who anointed and buried the body of Christ were on the same council that made sure Jesus would die. But they also gave him a place of resurrection. They disassociated themselves with the murder plot and chose to be part of the plan of God. They were probably already questioning the council and its motives, but there are people who might hear this podcast and not understand the lengths to which God goes to save people. But Paul wrote that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. At the cross, he atoned for sin. He took the keys to death, hell, and the grave there. In his resurrection, and and really that's kind of wrong. When he's buried in that tomb, he doesn't take the keys to death. He just took the keys to hell and hell in the grave because that's where he was at. In his resurrection, he took the keys to death. So if you really think that you can stand and listen to this podcast or look at either of us and be like, I, I don't know if God will forgive me. If these two men can stand in the presence of Jesus at his trial, listen to the false accusations made against him 
and openly opposed the council by going to get his body. I don't think you've went too far. But you better make sure to disassociate yourself with that council. The wicked, the council of wickedness, the council that put Jesus on the cross. At the cross, we got a way of repentance. At the resurrection, we got the power. Yeah. And there's your significance. We can choose to keep following this same path. We can choose to believe that we are too far. But there are a multitude of people. Paul killed Christians. The Christians forgave him, and he is one of the most prolific writers to ever live and composed over half of our New Testament. Peter denies Jesus. He's the one that gives the sermon on the day of Pentecost. He's the one that looks, that's looked to as the leader of the disciples that are of the apostles. James, James, the brother of Jesus, not James, the son of Zebedee or the zealot for that matter. James, the brother of Jesus initially said Jesus was crazy. He was a madman. James ends up dying for his brother. So, also, Josephus is venerated in the Catholic Church as a saint. And I know that we're not Catholic, but that's the level that he made it to. Nicodemus, I believe, is also venerated. Uh, don't you know, That may be false, but I'm pretty sure he is. But either way, you're not too far. You're not too far gone. That, that is the purpose of the resurrection. It is to seek and to save that which is lost and to give them a hope beyond all hope hoping against hope yeah and I, I mean that's one of the things that always it always interests me is like people get so down on themselves i mean i've been there i've been in a place where i i truly felt that there's no way that god could forgive me and and it's just it's so crazy like how we can get to that place like how how can we get to that place like Man, I, I look in the Bible and we got, you know, Nicodemus and Joseph and they they were on the council that plotted to kill Jesus. Even if they disagreed, like, you know, on some level, they, they knew what was happening at minimum. We have, you know, Paul who travels the countryside executing Christians. And then he writes half the New Testament. Yep. You know, we have you know solomon and david and you know all of these old testament figures that just they did some messed up stuff and yet then we say like god can't forgive me i told some lies or you know i did i i mean nothing i've done even begins to compare to executing people for believing in jesus <laughs> yeah you know, and we get to that place where we feel like God can't forgive us, and he can. Because he did, because he did it for all of us. No matter who you are, no matter what you did, you can never get so far that God can't 
kufikia dini